Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. 
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Denver, Colorado in the Denver Art Museum. I'm pleased to be joined by the Honorable Governor of the State of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm not, not sure how honorable, but delighted to be with you, Peter. Thank you. Wow, you started with a disclaimer. You, well, this is the modern world. You know, politics isn't what it was six months ago. It wasn't what it was six days ago. <laughs> what are you talking about? We'll get into that. But most importantly, I mean, you have the record of being the only geologist ever elected mayor, the only brewer other than Sam Adams... <laughs> Ever elected, what, governor? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a strange ride, a long, strange ride. And here you are. And here I am, loving every minute. And Colorado brews more beer than any other state in, in America, so take that, Milwaukee. I mean, yeah. who knew? Who knew? And, and, and now Denver has, we call Denver the Munich of the West. It now has more than 310 federally licensed breweries, or that's the state. We have 100 breweries in, in, in Metro Denver. And you were one of them. We were the fourth. So the Wine Coop Brewing Company way back when, which I have sold, so that's not a promotional plug, uh, sold it in 2008. Uh, but that was back when the rent in Lodo was $1 per square foot per year. And was, what might that rent be now? So I think it runs about 40 bucks, you know, unfinished yeah. to, before you go in and fix, fix it up. Well, I remember when I first came to Colorado as a correspondent for Newsweek, I was sent out to do a story on the Coors Brothers. I think I was the only guy who ever got to talk to all of them. <laughs> um, and what a crazy story that is. Yeah, it is and, amazing. And, and what people forget, and I, I'm, I'm dating myself now, but when, when Richard Richard Nixon was president and was out in San Clemente at the Western White House. When Air Force One would fly back to Andrews Air Force Base, it would make an unscheduled stop in Denver. <laughs> because in those days, Coors wasn't distributed outside the state of Colorado. And Air Force One would actually land and they'd load up with Coors. I never heard that. That's amazing. It's a true story. What's been the, been the biggest challenge for you? Well, part of it is, is, you know, I came in to try and bring common sense, small business, right? A restaurant uh, attitude uh, towards making political decisions, right? Comments, more common sense, less politics. And my first goal was just to cut the red tape, get rid of the bureaucracy, and be pro-business, but with high standards, right? Make sure people are fairly regulated, but, but pro-business. Well, you know, 15 years later, we're the number one economy in the country, according to U.S. News and World Report. But, but that growth, I mean, it is real. I mean, in terms of affordable housing and transportation congestion, it's hard to keep up with that level of success. And everybody's got a bike. And <laughs> everybody's got. Well, that, people wonder why we've been such a popular destination for millennials. And I say it's it's beer, bikes, and bands. And we now have more live music venues than Austin or Nashville. Fact. And yet they get all the buzz for it. They get all the buzz, but they don't have the Lumineers. They don't have the Daniel Radcliffe and the Night Sweats, Sweats. They don't have the Fray. I mean, we've got all these great young emerging bands. But you know, you mentioned the word millennials. I call them the unmentionables. Um, <laughs> I do. Because everybody is so focused on the millennials, and, and I keep on saying, when you take a look at travel, the, the biggest decisions are not made by the millennials. They're made by the, still the baby boomers, yep. who are actually the ones with the passports, who are actually actually spending the money and going someplace. Yeah, the, but the millennials, again, they're not starting as many businesses as maybe the baby boomer, right. boomers did, but they're still... I mean, the, the millennial, millennials who are starting businesses are creating gazelles, right? Companies that grow really fast. So we really focus on trying to make Metro Denver and Colorado uh, the most inviting place. I mean, there's now more than 1,000 miles of bike trails in Metro Denver. Uh, we've got, I mean, it's not just Ride the Rockies, which is, you know, five days of up overpasses, down through valleys. Have you, have you done that? 
No, I almost <laughs> did it a couple <laughs> couple times, but each time wisdom got in the way. Yeah. But we have a bunch of other uh, – they were telling me outside that, that this summer, August 18th to 20th, they're going to have Outer Bike, which is the biggest mountain bike demo on earth. And they're going to have literally – Many, many thousands of people coming from all over the world to demo mountain bikes. Now, you know, you know how I interpret that? Orthopedic surgery. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. No, no, no. no. They're going to be up in the Gunnison Valley, and it's some of the most beautiful landscapes God ever created. And they're they're going to be checking out the you know up around Crested Butte and up yeah. there. And it's just so beautiful to be there. And they've got some of the w- most amazing world class mountain bike trails. Okay, so here's my question: When you were 17, and I was 17, all we wanted was a car. Yeah. Right? That's all we wanted. Yeah. Ask a 17-year-old today if they want a car. They could care less. They yeah. don't. Right? So if you're General Motors and Chrysler and Ford and you're trying to plan ahead, what do you do? Right? Well, just what they're doing. They're looking at, you know, automation and uh, autonomous vehicles and trying to use technology to get an edge. But it's got to be disconcerting because it, it became a symbol of your of your manhood or your womanhood. Right? When we were right. kids, it was part of the... The rite of passage to become an adult. Absolutely. You took the driver's test, and maybe they let you borrow the car before (laughs) before they let you actually go out and buy one. Or you'd work all summer and save and save save and save. What was your first car? Uh, Well, my first car, it's kind of embarrassing. It was a a used Volkswagen Squareback. Not not very sexy. Um, But I do do cling to the And how long did you have it? Oh, I had it for about six years. Yeah, there I had, you go. I had it for a while. The uh, But when I got laid off as a geologist, I came out here in 81 as a geologist, and the price of oil collapsed, and our whole company got sold. We all got laid off in 86, and I that I got a year's pay as severance. I was lucky in you those days. You were very lucky, yeah. Uh, but I took one out and, and used $4,000 to buy a 1967 red Malibu convertible, which I still have Chevrolet. to this day. Chevy Chevrolet. Malibu. It was just a jewel. And you still have it? Still have it, of course. I drove it yesterday. I still have my 67 Mustang. Equally, uh, equally classic, yeah. or maybe even a little more. You might have just one-upped me there. Well, yes, <laughs> but we still have it. Yeah, we. we and, and you know, but one of the reasons why we still have it is because if we open the hood, we we actually know what a spark plug is. Exactly. I can't take my other car in. I can't do anything on that. Yeah, exactly. My my older brother, seven years older, uh, was a mechanic. He did uh, Volkswagens and Porsches. But he helped me rebuild an engine when I was like 19, so I knew how to take a Chevy 283 apart and put it back together. You know, kids today, I try to talk my son into that. He's like, Dad, whatever. Exactly. They're not going to do it. Yeah, no way. Well, that brings up a bigger transportation issue, and that is, you know, one of the the campaign promises of the Trump administration was infrastructure. Sure. You know, a $1 trillion investment in planes, trains, automobiles, airports, roads, bridges. And, of course, recently the the administration said, ah, we'll do that next year. They're sli- <laughs> well, you heard it. That's what they said. Yeah. Uh, and yet, that's got to be a challenge for you as the governor to figure out, do we want high-speed trains? Do we want, you know, uh, an infrastructure that actually works, with that creates jobs, that, that provides an ease in the system as opposed to a hindrance? Well, you know, we've tried in Colorado to be a model of things like transportation infrastructure yeah. of how to come to an agreement. And we are, I, I would argue, the most collaborative region and the, and the most collaborative state in the country. So when I was mayor, I got elected in 2003 as mayor of Denver, and I'd never run for student council. I was clueless. You'd think Trump is having a hard time. I couldn't find the bathrooms. But I did know that— to By get, the way, he's having trouble finding the bathrooms, too. <laughs> so they say— I have this vision of him walking around the, the, the White House at night in his bathrobe as Macaulay Culkin incarnate, <laughs> going, hello, <laughs> and watching Fox. But that's another story. Uh, but we went We went to all the suburban mayors in Metro Denver. At that yeah. time, there were 34 mayors, and about two-thirds of them, maybe three-quarters, were Republicans. 
and we convinced every one of them to support a four-tenths of a cent sales tax increase for the whole region, right, seven counties, to create 122 miles of new track. So it's called Fast Tracks, and we passed that almost, well, 55-45 by a big majority, and we've just finished now, so from downtown, from lower downtown and Union Station, you can take the train right out to the airport. Uh, you can go out to almost every corner of the city on light rail. It has been such an attraction for the for the millennials, for the young kids. Well, let's talk about the trains. Because first of all, I like the fa- the idea that you're still using Union Station for what it was built for initially. Plus, you've added to it. Yeah. All the retail, all the hotel, all that stuff. Well, and my, my brew pub was across the street. And so when I first opened the brew pub <laughs> in six weeks, like six weeks into it, the city was planning to to take that one train a day, Amtrak, which and, you know, and cut it and kill it, and, and kill it, and to move it out to some station twenty blocks to the north, and they wanted to turn the station into a mall. So I put up little uh, petitions in the restaurant called SOS, Save Our Station. In six weeks, we got thirty four hundred signatures, and they changed. We won. My wow. first direct political action. And Amtrak still shows up. Yeah, twice a day. Okay, this is the question I have to ask you, not just as a governor, but as a citizen. It's every administration, Congress tries to kill Amtrak somehow. Right. They don't fund it enough. They try to cut the subsidies. I'm, a, I'm not like a trained geek. I'm not. But I believe it has a, a role to play and that it's not being properly funded and it's not being properly positioned. Right. I think that if it was properly put together, it would have much higher ridership. The subsidies would be less. Uh, you know, all these things, just like what we did with Fast Tracks, of getting all the suburban mayors to work together and, and – buy into the same vision. Yeah. Think about that, getting all 34 mayors to all agree on a tax increase. It's amazing. Well, that's what we should be doing with all the investments. The federal government should be a partner with counties and, and municipalities and with states. We should all roll up our sleeves. It shouldn't be partisan where we put how, much, how big our roads are, how much light rail we put in. We should be making those decisions together. You know, I go back to a quote from Dwight Eisenhower who said, America didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. <laughs> oh, I never heard that. I love that. It's a true story. So, so true. It is. Hello? I'm repeating we're not in Kansas anymore. I've been coming to Denver, God, since 1973, and when I first came here, I think there was like, oh, there was McDonald's and and a couple of like you know steak and potato restaurants and maybe some rack of lamb restaurants because it was Colorado. Sure. But wow, have things changed? And uh, my next guest knows all about that because he's the co-founder of Eat Denver. I mean, how many restaurants are in Denver now? Um, I mean, what time is it? Okay, and Something's by the way, open. that's Adam Schlegel, by the way, who's the, who's the co-founder of Eat Denver. I mean, seriously, if you, if you, I'm not even talking breweries now. I'm just talking restaurants. Sure. I think, you know, the report I've seen in the past three years, 250 new restaurants every year have opened up. And this How year— How many close? Uh, not nearly at that clip, I can right. tell you that. So yeah. the offerings right now, the opportunities to go dine is—, is Better than it's ever been. And sure. the ethnic opportunity. You want Mexican, you got Mexican. You want Thai, you want Chinese. It's whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the greatest parts of the emergence of the city and what it's doing. And we're still a bit of a meat and potatoes town in that we do know it's a, it's a cattle town and, and we understand but most that. People but most so people outside of Denver don't know that. They think it's a ski town. 
Yeah, I mean, Denver. Or the gateway to ski town. We, you know, we often talk about this as much as we can in the restaurant community of, of how do we spread this good word because what's happening here is, is really special. I mean, we've got, it's one of the most attractive climates you can, you can kind of find in here. And there's a lot of young ingenuity, creativity that's happening here. And so you're finding people coming not only from here, born and raised, and getting their like dreams created, but you're finding people coming from East Coast, West Coast, in the middle, and seeing this is, is kind of a land of opportunity. Um, and it's hungry, and we need more diversity. And so you've really, over the past 10 years, this city has exploded for what is great food. And of course, it's not just the restaurant scene, it's the arts and cultural scene as well. But what's the most surprising thing to you? Not that there's been an explosion, but the way it's exploded. The the clip that's happened and that it continues to rally on and on and on. I mean, I think that everybody has this question of a bubble and when and if it ever pops. But year in and year out, there is a better restaurant. There is a new restaurant. There's a new neighborhood that, you know, when I grew up here, I would never would have stepped foot in. That suddenly is, is so cool. I'm like five years gone. I, I missed the boat of coolness through there. And it's just emerging and popping, and you're finding... By the way, I've been missing the boat of coolness for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I don't want to assume that I'm ever going to be on that boat, but I, at least I see people drifting down. I'm like, oh, that sounds... That looks cool. It's a good boat. And yet, it's, it's one thing to open a restaurant, or many restaurants. It's another thing to do it right, and to do it sustainably, and to do it smartly. And I hate to use the word political correctness, but, you know, Denver does pride itself on, on taking responsibility. Absolutely. I mean, my... You know, I started uh, co-founder of a restaurant called Snooze AM Eatery, and my brother and I started about 11 years ago. It's a breakfast and lunch restaurant. One of our hallmarks and, and one of the things we really drive is sustainability. And it's not just what we put on our plate. It's not just the ingredients, which is certainly a hallmark, but Colorado is an outdoorsy place. We really take pride in, in our nature, our environment. And so water is a very huge issue for our city. Um, electricity, cycling, transportation, how do we actually move around and do this? These are all like values I feel Colorado wears on its sleeve. Do you offer see- discounts for bikers? We do. We actually offer 10% discounts for bikers. We actually got the second bike rack, on-street bike rack, just installed out in front of our first location um, last week. We give discounts or even free meals to all of our staff that rides bikes. You know, there's it's the cycling community's uh, such a strong I will even say artists in, in what is creating such a fun, dynamic city for it. So we're all trying to figure it out. There's a great new event that's going to happen here August 11th through the 13th called the Velorama, which is a revitalization of a USA Pro Cycling Challenge. This is going to have some of the top athletes in the world coming down to celebrate cycling, food, beer, bands, city. Cycling and beer, yeah, there's a combination. <laughs> it happens. It happens a lot. Be a rapid change in cabin pressure. Oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Before I introduce my next guest, I have to do a little brief because when I first came to New Orleans um, by train, uh, I uh, got into New Orleans late because Amtrak is never on time and got to the hotel around 10 o'clock at night and got a call from a friend of mine who lived down here and was very much involved in Jazz Fest and said, what are you doing later? I'm going, it's 10 o'clock at night. What do you mean? What, what, what are you doing later? I said, I don't know. He says, well, I'll meet you, uh, I'll meet you in, the, in the lobby at like 1.00. In the lobby at one. Okay. 
So I, I'm like, what is going on here? I get in the lobby, and she's there. And she was late, too. She got around 1.15. And she says, come on with me. I said, where are we going? She said, to the river. I said, we're going to the river at 1.15 in the morning? Yes. What are we doing? You'll see. We get to the river. There's a riverboat. She says, get on. I said, at 1.30 in the morning? Yep. And the boat is untied, and off we go. And who's on the boat? The Neville brothers. And the next thing you know, we didn't get back till 5 in the morning. And it was like performance all night long. That is the New Orleans I remember. That is the New Orleans that still exists today. And joining me now, somebody who knows all about that, Doug McCash, who's the entertainment editor at the Times Picayune. Peter, listen to this. There's a chance we've met before because I was a bartender on the uh, Riverboat <laughs> President, no lie. And uh, I used to work those Neville Brother concerts. And they were fabulous. I, so you, you know I'm not making that uh, up. You're not making it up at all. And during Jazz Fest, they used to do back-to-back uh, -back concerts. Yeah. Where they would do a concert, you know, at a reasonable hour, starting at 9.30 or something, and then they'd clean the place and do a second concert, and uh, you'd, you know... See, the thing was, it wasn't that the, the crazy thing they were going to do a second concert. The crazy thing was they were actually able to clean the place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have seen it. Throwing the chairs across the deck to get to the floor, and oh, yeah. just that fast. I did see it. I was there. Well, there you go. Exactly. There you now, go. You've been at the Times Picayune for... I've been there for 18 years, I so think. So you've seen so many changes, not just to mention the newspaper business, but just in terms of the city itself. The city itself. Um, gosh, uh, Katrina was the big moment here, as you know, 2005, and the uh, the hurricane and flood that uh, shut the city down for a period of time. I was here. I would have lost every bet because I thought that that was pretty much the end of the art scene I thought that the music scene was scattered and, you know, we kept our fingers crossed that it was coming back. I was wrong across the board. The art scene came back stronger than ever. More devotion, you know. You, you know what's even stronger? And, and I hope you don't disagree with me. The art gallery scene. Oh, my God. I mean, just driving down Julia Street last night, I mean, just looking out and seeing some of the galleries I'd never seen before. It's absolutely true. I mean, this is a, this is a small town and there are... Um, and there are three, uh, there are at least three gallery rows in town. It's amazing. So since 2005, because that was Katrina, what's changed the most for you? What's changed the most? Oh, my goodness. I guess in the, in, in the most general terms, a real devotion, you know, to the city. I think the people who are here. A, a much more of an emotional uh, connection. Much more of an emotional connection, I think. And, uh, and you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. The drive to uh, the drive to stay, the drive to uh, um, dig in no matter what. Now, there are still neighborhoods that need help. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. St. Bernard's and, and uh, the wards. I mean, a couple that still need work. It is absolutely true. You can drive. Uh, I could drive you through neighborhoods that where there's still weed-filled uh, fields where there used to be houses. Yeah, and there's still a couple of houses that are still red-tagged. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's, but, but it's come back. It really has. It has, uh, it has made a remarkable recovery. Now, let's get off Bourbon Street for a second, can we? Sure. Okay, good. If we must. Well, <laughs> well at a certain point, we must. Uh, and I'm not trying to be elitist about it, but, you know, there's so many things that are going on outside of that. It is true. It is absolutely true. Um, oh, gosh, uh, um, right off the bat, Frenchman Street, which, which almost connects with Bourbon Street, is, uh, is a whole nother entertainment district that is, um, on any given night, easily as crowded. Has a, has a little different tone. Um, uh, Bourbon Street is a trip. 
it's uh, everybody should go there. Everybody should see it. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and um, and by the way, everybody does go there. And everybody does go there, and everybody yeah. does see it. I think Frenchman Street. Maybe maybe the tone of the music is more serious. Maybe the tone of the music is is uh, a less purely good time, and you know, and and more um, uh, concert uh, sort of. Eh, that's not right. It's what is it? Uh, <laughs> it has a different tone. Let me oh, leave okay. it at so that. So let's talk about French. Where do you go on that street? Oh, golly, there's a place called DBA that I like quite a bit. Uh, there's a place that's been there forever called Snug Harbor, which is one of the most comfortable clubs to see a show anywhere. It's, it's, it, it's exactly as you imagine a little um, jazz club ought to be. You go in, there's candles on the table. You, uh, you sit shoulder to shoulder with everybody else and watch somebody that you can almost reach out and touch. For someone listening to the show who's never been here before, what would you say to them would be the biggest surprise awaiting them that might even be a surprise to you these days? Oh, gosh, big surprise. Um, well, it's everything you want it to be. That's for sure. Whatever in your imagination, you know, Bourbon Street is like. Well, that's what it's like. It's going to be a crowded, crazy experience. You're going to love it. And then that'll spill you out onto Frenchman Street, and you're going to love that too. So um, maybe, not, maybe not a surprise, but maybe that it, it so meets expectations. I mean, you know, Las Vegas branded itself for so many years as what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that could have easily be attributed to New Orleans. That is true, and it's a funny thing. Lately, that's been part of the conversation here because they are installing security cameras, have installed, on Bourbon Street. And I spoke to uh, a doorman at one of the clubs, and he said, you know, this is a great idea, but I'm a little worried that people think on Bourbon Street that nobody will ever know what goes on, and now they will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if that's the case, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly. You can't with walk me. or let's even stay still for any amount of time without hearing music. It's on the streets, it's, uh, I-, I love the parades. And we're not just talking Mardi Gras, folks. We're talking about parades all year long. And uh, joining me now, somebody who knows a little bit about the music scene here, because he writes about it all for the New Orleans Advocate, Keith Spira. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, New Orleans' only daily newspaper? Yes. <laughs> the only one delivered seven days a week. Amazing, because a lot of the, the Times-Picayune has gone online. Yeah. Exactly. They, they, uh, my former employer, the Times-Picayune, only delivers three days a week. Uh, you know, indicative of how New Orleans is kind of behind the times. We actually have an old-fashioned newspaper war going on in these, uh, you know. I kind of like digital. that. It's kind of cool. No, I kind of like it. Now, you're a native? I am, born and raised. You grew up listening to music. You can't, you can't hide it when you're in New Orleans. I did. My dad was a huge fan of New Orleans rhythm and blues from the 50s and 60s. So around the house, we were always hearing... Fats Domino and Irma Thomas. Fats Domino, who lived here. And still lives here. Yeah. Still lives here, incredibly. Yeah. 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 So I was uh, indoctrinated early on to the music scene in New Orleans. Of course, you know, back then when I was, uh, you know, a a youngster and a teenager, I thought that was kind of all old man music. I wasn't very interested in listening to Fats Domino. I wanted to listen to Motley Crue and things like that. But uh, And then things changed. Then things changed. I grew up and realized that that stuff is cool and timeless and, uh, you know, in a twist of fate, ended up introducing my father to Fats Domino one time. So it's kind of come full circle for me. Wow. And you say it's cool and timeless. It's cool because it is timeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, those singles that were made here in New Orleans in the 50s and 60s, you know, 
Dave Bartholomew, the producer who co-wrote all of his Fat Domino stuff, I mean, he had such a great ear, and they tapped was into Blueberry, something. Was Blueberry Hill done here? It, I believe it was recorded here. I mean, they, you know, Fats didn't write that one. Those were the ones he did not write. No, but the, he made it famous. Made it famous, absolutely. Uh, and the vast majority of his singles were cut here at Cosmo Matassa's various studios uh, on North Rampart Street, which it's now a laundromat. Um, but there's a little plaque on the outside saying this is where, you know, basically rock and roll was formed. Well, the last time I spent some time here, my tour guide was Harry Connick. Mm. And he and I were going out into the neighborhoods and, you know, doing a music tour. Senior or junior? Junior. Junior. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Senior's a singer, too, you know, but... Uh, well, he, but was, he was a judge. He, he was a district attorney. District yeah. attorney. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's also a crooner. So, yeah. Uh, but yes, Harry Jr. spent a lot of times, uh, a lot of time going out to hear music as a youngster. He had a tutor named James Booker. Are you familiar with James Booker? No, he told player? me the story that he used to come over to his house all the time and lived with him for a while. I mean, this is hanging out with him. Book, it was, there was a grand irony, and you know, Booker had a bit of a criminal history and was an interesting character, but, you know, Harry's dad, the DA recruited him as a tutor for his young son, which is kind of fun. Yeah, he came up through the system, meaning the criminal justice system. Yes, he did. He had a little heroin problem at times. And, uh, yeah, was it was an unusual choice for a DA to have but a to tutor. This, but to this day, Harry t- credits Booker. At just about every show he plugs him. I mean, he just played uh, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival a little while back, and Harry on stage did a whole James Booker tribute. Amazing. So there's Tipitina's. We know about some of the clubs, right? What's, what's some of the places that people may not know about? You know, there's a listening room, a place called Chikiwawa, that I really like a lot. It's, it's a bit of an outpost. It's not near any of the entertainment districts. It's on which, Canal- by, which, by the way, makes it pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, Frenchman Street's a lot of fun, um, but it, it has become a little overwhelmed by its popularity. Chikiwawa is sort of a standalone club on a stretch of Canal Street uh, out of downtown, but it's just a really good listening room good beer, comfortable room. They have good food there that you can order. And uh, it's where a side of New Orleans music that you don't always hear as much about, kind of the singer-songwriter vibe. You hear a lot of those kind of guys there. Uh, so it's a little bit eclectic. It's not just the brass band jazz funk thing. It's a little more... Uh, and the brass band jazz funk thing. thing you can do on Bourbon Street. To, to a degree. I mean, you can't do necessarily um, what I would consider the authentic brass band experience on Bourbon Street anymore. Um, where, do got, you, where do you find that? Tuesday nights at the Maple Leaf Bar. Oh, well, we know the Maple Leaf. Come on. I yeah. mean, you know, Rebirth's been playing that gig forever, you right. know. Um, I mean, that's kind of the the uh, flagship brass band Riding gig. Along in my, automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. We've been talking food on and off throughout the show for good reason. The, the food scene has exploded over the years, and my next guest has seen it all because he's been at the Philadelphia Inquirer for like the last 19 years, I think. Uh, Craig Levan, Right. Yes, that's right. Thanks for having me. Yes, you're the restaurant critic and, and food and drink columnist. I love that. How do you become a drink columnist? You just... Uh, At the Philadelphia Inquirer, I might add. Yes. You drink on deadline is basically what, what happens. <laughs> you don't write on deadline. You just drink on deadline. Well, I'll drink and then write on deadline. Sure. Oh, wow. That, does it help the writing? You know, you gotta you gotta taste it to describe it. So it, it is, uh, it's kind of... Remember essential. this, folks. He's working. He's working. 
we just we just had a big beer festival, uh, a beer competition in town called the Brewvitational. We had over forty one breweries, and we had I had of judges. those forty one breweries, how many from Philadelphia? All. You're kidding. In the Philadelphia region, and we had seventy nine beers on the table with twelve judges and four hours to sip and rate them all. And were paramedics standing by? <laughs> we were we were highly trained professionals. A lot of sipping and spitting going on. I bet. But uh, we had fun, and uh, you know, you learn you learn to uh, to do this job uh, thoughtfully and professionally. Well, let's give it some perspective. When you got here in 1998, there were not 41 breweries in Philadelphia. Oh my gosh, no. We, you know, Philadelphia's beer revolution has been a major part of of the of the dining scene here. We have an old tradition uh, in German German roots of brewing here, lager was uh, first brewed in America right here in Northern Liberties. So it was in our DNA, but you know, when the craft beer revolution started about 20 years ago, there were about four or five local breweries. Uh, some of them, many of them were actually out in the suburbs like Victory and Stouts and Sly Fox. We had yards here as well. And uh, you know, it has grown tremendously over the last two decades. And now, um, and how many, how many of those beers are on tap in this town? They're all on tap. Uh, I, countless. Unreal. I, it, it, you can't keep up with them. And that was just, you know, 80 new beers. <laughs> it's incredible. But the food scene as well. The food scene has really exploded over the past two decades. Uh, Philadelphia has always sort of thought of itself a little bit in the shadows of uh, New York and D.C., and it has really kind of come into its own over the last two decades. I mean, yes, there are the cheesesteaks, yes, there are the pretzels, and I love them, and there's no reason not to, right? Absolutely. But? Well, Philadelphia is, is an incredibly diverse uh, dining scene with very sophisticated uh, things and options for people to, to, to go for, and we have this sort of level of uh, accessible sophistication that a lot of other cities on the East Coast don't have. We have all the assets of a great big city, uh, the talent, and the dining crowd to appreciate it, but there's sort of an affordability and a human scale to the restaurants here that I think you don't find in New York City or D.C. Would I be safe to say you also don't find the attitude? Oh, we have attitude. <laughs> it's more of a pride, and it's more of a real person, you know, welcome to our, welcome to our restaurant, you know, attitude, because, you know, Philadelphia is not a dining scene driven by expense accounts. These are real people here who pay in their own money, and so we have a great neighborhood dining scene. And that's the difference. Absolutely, because the people running those restaurants know their customers. There's a very personal scale of interaction. We have a lot of smaller restaurants in Philadelphia, and I think that's a function of the sort of historic landscape yeah. it grew up in. I, I would presume then you have a, a less of a turnover. You know, it seems like more restaurants open up every year than you can imagine, and there inevitably there are some closings, but... It's nowhere at the pace that you, you, know, you hear, oh, 50% of restaurants close after three years. That's, that is not the case in Philadelphia if you're, doing, if you're doing what you should be doing. And what should you be doing? Well, I mean, you know, serving great food with real hospitality and, you know, putting, there's a very high standard in Philadelphia, really good cooks. And, um, okay, you just said something that was interesting. You said really good cooks as opposed to celebrity chefs. Right. Well, we have celebrity chefs. Oh, I know chefs. you do, but we, we're living in a world in which every chef has to be a celebrity. You know, that, that, has, that has certainly evolved over the last 20 years, you know, with, with uh, the t uh, Food Network and, you know, uh, TV shows. And it's certainly become 
you know, food has become a part of our pop culture and our mainstream culture and a sort of celebrity aspect to it in a ways that it, you know, it never was 20 years ago. And yet when I think of Philadelphia, I don't think of celebrity chefs. I think of good cooking. There's a difference. Well, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, you really have to be uh, paying attention every day to what's going on in your restaurant. And once again, making that connection with your customers, listening to what they want, evolving, evolving your menus to reflect, you know, what's fresh in the market and make people feel like you are operating a living, breathing restaurant, not simply a product with your name on it. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Michael Solomonov, who has got a great restaurant, that amazing, I won't say just Israeli food, I'll, I'll call it Middle Eastern food. Yeah, you know, M Michael Solomonov is certainly one of our great stars in Philadelphia and, you know, was just named most outstanding chef in the country by the James Beard Award, a well-deserved award for his restaurant, Zahav, which is I an exploration of modern Israeli food. Yeah. And you can say Middle Eastern, of course, because, you know, Israel is in the Middle East, but it's such a melting pot and there's so many influences that come into Israel. Listen, on his wine list, he's got wines from Lebanon. Absolutely. He's got what, wines from the West Bank. I know. It's amazing. It's like, what? This is cool. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. I'm joined by a guy with a little bit of history, not just here, but overseas as well. A 2011 James Beard winner, but he's now the owner and proprietor of Zahav's Open Kitchen. I, I, I just call it Open Kitchen because that's your restaurant, man. That is. Michael Solomonov, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, dude. And uh, Dude, okay. I got dude out of you. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? It's interesting. The Philadelphia food scene, we've been talking about it throughout the show, is it's exploded. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, in every different form and every different variety. It's not, uh, with no due disrespect to cheesesteaks and pretzels, uh, you've gone way beyond that. And especially in the bread department, the bread at your place is unbelievable. Well, I appreciate that. We take our bread very, very seriously. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, Philly is known for cheesesteaks and I guess that's basically it. But I mean, Philly has a tremendously rich uh, culinary history. The pepper pot soup is like, you know, tripe and stupid. Well, you're peppers. from here, right? Well, actually, I'm from... Well, you were, you were born in Israel. I was born in Israel, but I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I've been... A Western PA guy. Western PA, which is a very different oh, place than Eastern it. PA. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we watched the red and the blue lines in the election. I, <laughs> well, actually, Pittsburgh was okay. You know, yeah. Pittsburgh yeah. and Philly, I think, were, were good. But um, I, uh, I've been here f since 2001, and I do feel like a Philadelphian. And, um, you know, I think that... The culinary scene has changed so much since I've been here, and it's been amazing to be a part of it and to to watch it. And it's amazing to open like an Israeli restaurant in such a historic city. And for those people who don't realize this, if you go to Tel Aviv right now, I'm just going to use Tel Aviv as an example. That's one of the hottest, cutting-edge, cultural food cities in, in the world right now in terms of, of, of restaurants, food, and nightlife. Yes. And you brought a lot of that stuff with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we, what has also happened in the last 20 years or so, but maybe closer to 10 years, is that, that Israeli chefs are leaving. They're going to do their apprenticeships in Europe or going to the States. And then whatever. they're staying. And then, well, they'll actually come back to Israel, and instead of opening, like, a Spanish or an Italian restaurant, they open an Israeli restaurant because there are, like, over 100 different gastronomies that make up Israeli cuisine, right? And instead of sort of hiding the, like, whatever they had for Shabbos with their family, they sort of celebrate it 
using their modern approach. But you see, when I when I eat at your place, yeah, and and take this as a, as a, as a compliment, I look at it as a mezza. Yes. Right. It's 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 not an Israeli buffet. It's 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 just regionally a, a mezza. Yes. Right. Yep. Well, I mean, we try to, you know, we're we are trying to celebrate all the different cultures and cuisines that that make up Israeli cuisine, and and we uh, have a bit of an advantage and disadvantage because we're in Eastern Pennsylvania. Right, which is challenging because we don't have access to all the things that that you have in Israel, but it's it's allowed us and sort of liberated us, and we can look at the cuisine as a whole and say, well, I want to do Yemenite and Moroccan and this, and put it all together on one plate. Where, as I think in Israel, it's taken a little bit longer to merge all those cuisines. And the name is Zahav. Yeah, it means gold. <laughs> and uh, it's a reference to Jerusalem because, as you know, we have like 40,000 pounds of Jerusalem stone in the restaurant. Oh, yeah. That was intentional. Yeah. I mean, a huge pain, but yeah, of course. Intentional. <laughs> An intentional pain. It was intentional pain. Is there a signature dish? Uh, I think it depends on sort of who you ask. We. Uh, can I give you a hint? <clears throat> I think we ordered three orders of the bread last night. I just want to uh, let you know. So, we, so the bread that we make is uh, lafa, which is like a Iraqi-style pita. It was brought to Israel in the um, in the early fifties. So pita and or the arlafa and the hummus are what people probably come to the restaurant for. We have a lamb shoulder that we braise in pomegranate juice that is also probably considered to be the uh, signature dish. And you say you braise it, you marinate it too, or what we do is we uh, brine it and then we smoke it and then we braise it in pomegranate juice and then just like glaze it and kind of let it char. But you perfected that in Israel. Uh, actually, we did that here. It was sort of by accident. We had a Passover Seder at the restaurant before it was open. Um, my family decided that it would be a good idea to have Seder in Philly in this restaurant like a week before we actually opened. Yeah, just for good luck. <clears throat> it was another terrible idea, but um, <laughs> we had a really good time. It worked out okay, and uh, the signature dish of the restaurant was created there for Passover. Wow. Yeah. And that's, and that's your signature dish, then? Yeah, I guess so. I'm going with the bread. Sorry. Go for it. Yeah. Whatever. That's your signature. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, you know, you know where I learned all that? Abu Lafia. Yeah, Abu Lafia, yeah. of course. Oh my God. So people good. don't know about that bakery in in Yaffa. Yeah. Oh my, out of yeah, that. from the like 1800s. Actually. Oh my. And you know, and you don't go there till 11 o'clock at night. Yep. Right. And then yep. and the bread's coming out hot, and people stand in line for hours just to get their hot bread. There's nothing. There's nothing as good as uh, like a hot. East flatbread out of the a wood burning oven, which would be found at which restaurant here in Philadelphia? Uh, Zahav. Okay, right? I just want to make sure we got that right. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, the the bottom line is, I mean, it's authentic. Uh, it is authentic, and it's made um, by hand, and it's a practice. It's a style of eating bread that and people have been doing for hundreds. A of James years. Beard winner. James Beard winner. Just yeah. this year. Yeah, we won Outstanding Chef this year. Wow. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.